Coming up on Tech Nation, it's the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And it's not even human physiology. It's the Neanderthals. We congratulate Professor Zavante Pabo and replay our 2014 interview about his book, Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. Then osteoarthritis, mostly in the knee, but pick a joint. Dr. Zem Nguyen is the CEO of Zalud Therapeutics. We'll talk about their work to reduce the inflammation that drives pain. It's now in human clinical trials. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. When I started reading his book, I realized that I didn't really understand popularity, as in the nature of popularity, its very definition. So I asked him, what is popularity? Mm, we're starting with the easy ones. Oh, um, good. <laughs> <laughs> what is popularity is a great question. I think you can break it down into two categories. The first category would be attention. It's what we pay attention to. But the second category is appeal. It's what we like. It's what we love. And we don't always like and love that which we pay attention to. I think about this in terms of TV ratings. Sometimes the shows with the highest TV ratings are sometimes hate-watched. People watch that show, uh, they tune in, but they despise the thing that they're looking at, uh, whether it's the news or sometimes even a reality show. And so popularity isn't just what we pay attention to, it's also what we love. And this is a book that's very much about the psychology of appeal, the psychology of why we like what we like, but it's also about the economic markets that sometimes determine that which we pay attention to. So I try to keep both in mind. Well, certainly the economic markets will at some point create popularity so that the economics can flow. And at other times, they chase the popularity mm. so that they can monetize it. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I think that, for example, in the history of the news industry, uh, we've gone from a period of relative scarcity in the middle of the 20th century. You had a handful of television stations and radio stations that had the power to reach tens of millions of people. But now the power of broadcast is democratized, and there are Twitter accounts and news feeds and Facebook pages, et cetera, et cetera, that have the power to essentially reach just as many people. And so it's not so much that we live in a purely viral world where everything is social and it's all one-to-one -one and one-to-two shares, but rather we live in a world where the power of broadcast has been democratized. And so now you have individuals whose powers of attention and powers of appeal, both sides of popularity, uh, are as large as some legacy media institutions. And then you tell us, don't listen to this, it's gone viral. There's nothing <laughs> viral about it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most fun chapters to write, actually, was the chapter called The Viral Myth. I think what's happened uh, these days is that when something gets big out of nowhere, we say, oh, that's gone viral. We default to saying this. 
But viral has a very specific meaning in epidemiology. It means that I get you sick and you get two people sick and they get two people sick each. And this disease spreads over many, many, many generations of intimate shares. But there's another way that information spreads, and we're participating in it right now. It's a single source of news being broadcast to many people at once. Uh, the Super Bowl, for example, is a very famous, well-known broadcast. Nobody says of an advertisement in the Super Bowl, oh my God, that ad went viral in the Super Bowl. No, it was very clearly broadcast to 115 million people at once. So the question, I think, for people who are interested in popularity is, does information truly go viral or does the, do the biggest broadcast determine popularity? And when data scientists now can actually study the spread of a Twitter post or a Facebook post or a viral YouTube video, it turns out that when you look at that information cascade, that map of the idea catching on, it looks much more like a series of broadcasts with sort of social tendrils than it looks like a pure disease spreading. So I would like us to sort of shift the way that we talk about the spread of information online from purely viral to broadcasts that we don't always see. And I call them dark broadcasts. And I think we live in a world that is dominated by dark broadcasts. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. He's still at The Atlantic, but you might also catch him doing news analysis on NPR's national afternoon show, Here and Now. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, a career in science digging into Neanderthal DNA and a whole new crowd of pre-modern humans, the Denisovans. This work has all led to the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. The winner, Dr. Savante Pabo, is the director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. I speak with him about his 2014 book, Neanderthal Man, In Search of Lost Genomes. Then in biotech, efforts to reduce the inflammation of osteoarthritis. I speak with Dr. Zem Nguyen, the CEO of Zalud Therapeutics. We'll learn about their approach as well as their progress in human clinical trials for osteoarthritis of the knee. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. I started my 2014 interview with Dr. Zavante Pabo by asking him, scientists used to wonder, did Neanderthal man ever procreate with modern humans? Is that debate over? Yes, I would say so. So by looking at the genomes of Neanderthals, we can now really show that pieces of their DNA has made it into people who live today. 
so that Neanderthals live on a little bit, if you like, in people today, if your ancestor comes from Europe or Asia. So it's not everybody, but we can tell the people who migrated through the Europe and Asia, the northern part, could have a little peace. Yes, so everybody who comes from outside Africa have pieces of Neanderthal DNA in them, whereas people in Africa do not. Now, remind us, 40,000 years ago, some band of people left Africa, emerged out, and that's really where everyone else came from today. And they, when they made it up into Northern Europe, that's where the Neanderthals were. Yes, so our best model for how this happened was that when modern humans emerged in Africa, they spread, of course, not only in Africa, but also out of Africa. And they then have had to pass by the Middle East. And we know there were Neanderthals in the Middle East at that time, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. And those people there, if they then mated with Neanderthals and became the ancestors to everybody outside Africa, so they sort of absorbed a little bit of DNA from Neanderthals and then carried it with them when they spread across the world. So that we find Neanderthal DNA today in people not only from Europe and Western Asia where Neanderthals have existed, but also in Native Americans or in people in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific, even places then where Neanderthals never existed. It was carried through other people getting there. Yes. Now, George Church was here, the famous uh, Harvard geneticist, and he says, I've got even more Neanderthal in me. Can't take a look at me. <laughs> you know? So there's variations as to how much you might have in you. There's a little bit of variation. It's not that much variation. In Europe, it's in the order of 1% or so of the DNA of any individual. It's slightly more, actually, in East Asia. And there are good evidence now that one mated at least another time with Neanderthals, perhaps in the Central Asia or so, when people migrated to the east. Now, the Neanderthals, they existed well before the Homo sapiens. Yes. So depending a little on how we define the Neanderthal morphologically from the remains of their bones, they appear something between three or 400,000 years ago in Europe and Western Asia. Whereas modern humans appear somewhere between 100, 200,000 years ago and start spreading out of Africa something like 50, 60,000 years ago. My goodness, they started and they ended and we're still going. Yes, and they existed even longer than we have existed so far on the planet. Ah, lesson to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so sort of put it in perspective with who is successful. Now, how long have you been trying to get DNA from Neanderthals? So this really goes back to the early 80s when I, I started my PhD in molecular biology back in Sweden. Uh, I had previously studied Egyptology and thought I would become an Egyptologist and got disenchanted with that and went to medical school. But I was then aware that there were thousands and thousands of mummies of both animals and humans in museums from Egypt and started looking into if people had tried to extract DNA and replicate it in bacteria from these things. And as far as I could make out, no one had tried. So I started attempting that more as a side project or a hobby. Well, you've had a lot of failures. 
Yes, especially <laughs> most. We love you. Yeah. You're the patron saint now of Silicon Valley. Failure <laughs> after failure before success. <laughs> yes, it certainly turned out that the vast majority of remains contained no endogenous DNA, no preservation of, of, of uh, uh, macromolecules. But there were rare exceptions. So one mummy of a child from what was then East Berlin, for example, contained in its skin, you could see in the microscope that there was cell nuclei there where the DNA is preserved. You could stain the DNA too, so you could light up in the microscope. So that clearly showed that there was DNA there. Then I went on to extract that DNA and replicate it in bacteria and was very excited that a little bit of that DNA came from humans. In hindsight, of course, I realized that what I probably was studying was DNA from myself or a museum curator in East Berlin or so. Because since then we've come to realize that contamination from present day humans is the biggest threat really in this type of work. So you could actually touch the mummy with your bare hands or have some DNA on the outside of, say, your gloves and move it, and that would make its way into the specimen, and that's what you were probably seeing. Yes. So, for example, dust particles in a room where humans move around is, to a big extent, skin fragments that do contain a lot of DNA. So if Ew! Such a small, is that true? Yeah, that <laughs> is true. So if a little dust particle like that lands in your test tube, you, you will sequence that person rather than the Egyptian mummy or the Neanderthal that you think you study. Now let's talk about what remains of the Neanderthal. What do we have from them? So there are remain, bone remains that you find, and the first one was found in 1856. It was actually the first time one came to realize that there had been other forms of humans here before us that looked different. And since then, one has found a lot of remains of Neanderthals, but there is actually no totally complete skeletons. So the reconstructed skeletons you see are always put together from different individuals from different sites. So someone digs up one of these things, touches it possibly with their bare hands. How do you not contaminate such a bone? Yes, so first of all, it's very much contaminated with the DNA from soil bacteria. So bacteria and also fungi that have colonized the bone over tens of thousands of years when it was deposited in the cave site or in the sediments. And then after it's excavated, of course, it's touched by paleontologists and museum keepers and so on. So it becomes contaminated. Of course, we try to then remove the surface of the bone and drill with a sterile dentistry drill into the bone to avoid the surface. Even inside often, if the bone has been washed, for example, DNA can have penetrated. So there are actually quite a few samples we look into and have to abandon because they are so contaminated. But you can then find rare, rare samples, particularly those that have not been handled very much, uh, that you can work with. Now you've been talking about you know, getting some DNA and then replicating it in bacteria. Tell people exactly what you're doing there and why that's so important. Well, so the technologies over the years from the 80s have really changed. Back then, we replicated the, bacteria, the DNA in bacteria. Then came other techniques, much more efficient techniques, the polymerase chain reaction that was discovered by Carrie Mullis here in the Bay Area. Um, that allows you to amplify a particular piece of DNA you're interested in. And what one focused on a lot was the mitochondrial genome. 
is a small piece of DNA outside the cell nuclei that exists in many copies per cell, so hundreds if not thousands of copies per cell. So it's much bigger chance that a few fragments have survived. So for many, many years, that was sort of the state of the art to study mitochondrial DNA with this polymerase chain reaction. But then in the early 2000s, there came around new techniques again, and that was high throughput DNA sequencing. So methods or machines that allow you to sequence millions of DNA molecules really rapidly and efficiently. So you could then leave this cumbersome attempt to amplify a certain piece of DNA you're interested in and simply sequence all the DNA you extracted from the bone and look for the small part of that DNA that has similarity to the human genome, which then presumably comes from the Neanderthals. Now, the mitochondrial DNA, that's the DNA we get from our mothers. This isn't mom and dad. Mm -hmm. This is just mom. Exactly. So we inherit all our mitochondrial DNA from our mothers. So we all just carry one type of mitochondrial DNA. And when we study it, we just look at the female side of history. And in addition, of course, on just one tiny part of the genome. So the nuclear genome gives a vastly richer picture of our history, not only both the maternal and paternal side, but sort of many instantiations of that history. So you can really take a statistical, comprehensive view of our genetic variation and the history of that variation. Well, are there a lot of Neanderthal bones around? Yes, it's not so few, actually. Probably in the order of a few hundred individuals, often represented by just a single bone or so. And then you want to go in and drill into it. And how do you get people to give you their bones? Well, it was very difficult, particularly in the beginning, something I described in this book that just appeared to. Um, but with time, it has, of course, gotten easier when we can now show that with the techniques we have developed, one can actually be successful, at least in some cases. And these techniques also allow us to use bones that are so small that you cannot even tell if it's a Neanderthal or an animal bone you find in a cave. So then we're in a sort of good situation. We can sort of argue that if you guys can't even tell me what species this bone comes from, it can't be very informative morphologically. So if we can then show that some of these bones are Neanderthals, we can generally then argue that we should be able to take a bit of the samples from Give them. me a piece of your bone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll return the rest. <laughs> now, you did try a number of bones without success. Absolutely. The majority of bones we can actually not retrieve DNA from. But that said, we have also in the, over the past seven, eight years worked very hard on improving the methods by which we extract from the bones and manipulate the DNA we get out to get it into a form that we can feed into the sequencing machines. So we've gotten in the order of 500 times more efficient in doing this than we were back in 2005 or so. So we're actually now, when we have rather well-preserved bones, we're able to sequence genomes to an accuracy that is as high as the genome we sequence today from me, say. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is 2022 Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Savante Pabo. We're talking about his 2014 book, Neanderthal Man, In Search of Lost Genomes. As you said, if you find DNA, it could even be in a Neanderthal bone, and 
It could be human. But one day, finally, you got the call from your lab assistant late at night. Tell us about that. So, yes, that was then back in 96, when we had finally gotten access to the Neanderthal type specimens. And just not any Neanderthal, but the Neanderthal found in 1856 in Neanderthal Valley. The real it, one. Yes, the one that gave <laughs> its name to this, this uh, type of humans. And we had extracted DNA from it. We had tried to amplify a piece of this mitochondrial DNA then. And we're feeding it into the sequencing machines. And I was home sleeping. And my graduate student, Matthias Krings, who did this, then saw the sequences as they came out in real time from the machine and realized that this was indeed mitochondrial DNA. And it looked human, but it looked different from any human one had seen at the time. So he called me yes, and, and sort of, could you say one thing? It's not human. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so I, of course, came into the lab at night. And indeed, sort of, we were very lucky in a sense that the Neanderthal mitochondrial genome turned out to fall outside the variation of modern humans. There's no human today that ran around with a Neanderthal mitochondrial genome. So we could really realize this had to be the right thing. Now, remembering that our, our DNA, any of our genome, is made up of four nucleotides, we call it G, C, A, and T, so that when this is coming out of the computer, you're really seeing letters, mm -hmm. a string of G, C, A, and T. Yes. And so these begin to look familiar. I mean, we've got three billion pairs in a human. It's like, okay, but they're familiar. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at this, you can see that's closest thing is a human, and it's not a dog. It's not a plant. It's not anything alive. So you can see that right away. Yes, because this part of the mitochondrial genome, we and others had at the time studied very, very much. One had sequenced a few thousand human individuals from this piece. So we really knew what to expect. And we, one could see that, yes, this is not an animal. This is clearly human, but it's a very different human. It's not like anyone one had seen to date. Now... There are many different ways of figuring out how much older one specimen is from another. Mm -hmm. But certainly in the tree of life and DNA, we can see how long it takes mutations to occur mm -hmm. for different life forms to mm -hmm. fall off, mm -hmm. who predated mm -hmm. who, how that works. How do we know from this difference in mitochondrial DNA that Neanderthals predated humans? Well... So what we can see is that their mitochondrial DNA traces its ancestry back to common ancestor with present-day mitochondrial DNAs, which is in the order of half a million years ago. Whereas the mitochondrial DNAs on everybody alive today on the planet, uh, no matter where we live, go back 100, 200,000 years. So this is over twice as far back to a common ancestor. So that all humans today go back to this rather recent ancestor that was known already from work by Alan Wilson at Berkeley, actually. But that the Neanderthal genome would go back so much further immediately sort of showed that this was a very different type of human. And I think if you think of it a different way, and, and leap in here if I'm wrong, is that 
as things are evolving, they evolve because there's a, a, a mutation in DNA. A little change here, a little change there, mm-hmm. whether it's dropouts, realign, whatever is going on. And that takes time. Yes. And so you can't evolve those pictures that take mm-hmm. one person and, and then mush them into another one. Mm-hmm. You know, it might take, you know, 10 changes to have one evolve to the other. Um, you just can't evolve that fast. You can't have that many changes. So we know it takes a long time in addition to matching mm-hmm. other life forms, if mm-hmm. you will, and their DNA. Yes. So we, we know that these mutations occur in our genome, it, when new individuals are formed in the germline, every baby that's born having the order of 100, 200 new mutations that are not there neither in the father nor in the mother. But uh, that is, of course, across more than 3 billion nucleotides. But this happened with a rather constant rate, so we can actually count back and see approximately when did I share or a piece of DNA in me share a common ancestor with you, for example. Now, while we're all humans and we say we have human DNA, your actual DNA programming is a a variation uh, on my DNA programming as well as on everyone else. I mean, how many different Neanderthals do we need to understand, to make some comment on the Neanderthals together? Well, so what we can use even a single good Neanderthal genome for is to find everything that we today have in common, because we have sequenced thousands of present-day people that live today. So we can find things that all these people have in common, where this single Neanderthal fall outside that and look like the apes. So yes, there might have been other Neanderthals that shared the state you have today, but we know that that ancestral state shared with the apes was at least there in some Neanderthals, since this one Neanderthal has it. So what we can use even this single high-quality genome that we're now determined to, is to find those things that really define present-day humans relative to our very closest extinct relative, the Neanderthals. And that's very fascinating to me, because that list is not very long. It's in the order of 30,000 changes in the genome that we all have together with the Neanderthal look like the apes. So it's, and that is, if you like, a genetic recipe for being a fully modern human. So whereas, say, I differ from you or from an individual Neanderthal that's in the order of three million positions, most of those differences are variable in the genome and someone else will not differ at those things. So if we just focus on these things that we all have in common, that's not more than 31,000 changes. And that doesn't seem like many among no. friends, especially if you have a computer. <laughs> yes, you can actually scroll through and look at them in an afternoon. It's another thing that we cannot understand yet very well, what these things really cause. But that is really something one can now go after. The genome is a tool, if you like, that allows scientists to now start investigating what these changes do. Now, of course, you know, we know about coming out of, of Africa and merging with the Neanderthals. But who would have guessed about the Denisovans? Did I say that correctly? Yes. So the Denisovans are then this 
other form of extinct humans that we discovered based on studying genomes, actually. They're so, just not as famous as the Neanderthal. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so this was this, we are very lucky to work together with archaeologists in Novosibirsk, particularly Anatoly Derevyanko and his team, that excavated different cave sites in Siberia, and particularly this site on the border of Russia, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and China, where the four countries meet, called the Nisova Cave, where in 2008 he found a tiny little bone that they were actually very skilled in recognizing that it could come from a human. It's the last phalanx of a pinky of a little girl. We looked at the DNA from that tiny bone, and we were convinced it would either be a Neanderthal or a modern human. And to our great surprise, it turned out to be something else. I'm speaking with 2022 Nobel Prize winner, Professor Savante Pabo. We'll talk more after a break. The Biotech Nation podcast individually can be found at biotechnation.com. And separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, osteoarthritis, mostly in the knee, but pick a joint. I speak with Dr. Zem Nguyen, CEO of Zalud Therapeutics, about their drug currently in human clinical trials. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with 2022 Nobel Prize winner Professor Zavante Pabo, the author of Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. A tiny little bone that they were actually very skilled in recognizing that it could come from a human. It's the last phalanx of a pinky of a little girl. We looked at the DNA from that tiny bone, and we were convinced it would either be a Neanderthal or a modern human. And to our great surprise, it turned out to be something else. We could then look at that genome and ask the same questions as for Neanderthals. Have these Denisovans contributed to people today, that live today? And indeed they have, but it turns out that that has particularly happened in the Pacific. So in people living in Papua New Guinea and Aboriginal Australians, 
in Fiji and so on. So although we found these remains in Siberia, we find the traces of these people and present-day people out in the Pacific. So this then suggests that these Denisovans have been much more widespread in the past, not only in Siberia. Presumably they were also in Southeast Asia, when ancestors of modern humans came there, mixed with them, and then continued out to colonize the Pacific. I don't care what kind of human you are, you just keep moving around. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this whole human seemed, we kept moving around. And you can kind of, you know, conjecture that the reason they would be on these little islands is once they got there, they didn't get off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, that's what the, so not a lot of people were traveling through, so it could be preserved over time. I think it's true that we move around a lot, but I think that that's also true for us fully modern humans. It's very striking to me, actually, that Neanderthals lived for 300,000 years and other forms of extinct humans lived for hundreds of thousands of years in Africa, Europe, and Asia. They never made it to the Americas, never to Australia, not even to Madagascar did they make it. And then oh, there is no evidence, actually, that they ever moved over open water where you don't see land on the other side, perhaps with one exception. So sometimes I say they were not mad. <laughs> then comes modern humans. And in 50,000, 60,000 years of spreading, after spreading out of Africa, one have come not only to the Americas and Australia, but to every little speck of land in the Pacific. And then we shoot ourselves into space. Yes, so Think we never stop. We never stop. We never stop. There is some <laughs> very different thing in our behavior. It, of course, has to do with technology to do this, but I think also with an attitude somehow. How many people must not sail out on the Pacific and simply vanish before one has found Easter Island? So somewhere we are mad, and the Neanderthals and the Denisovans and the others were not. When you look over all the human-like, and now that we have the Neanderthals and the Denisovans, so we didn't even know were separate and existed, um, what do you think this tree of life is going to look like at the, as we out and find all of the, the humans that are out there? Mm -hmm. Because people are still excavating. We're mm -hmm. still finding things. Is there a hunch there? Yes, I think sort of if we limit the time we talk about, about what, what were the types of humans that were there when modern humans appeared and started to spread, say, in the last 100,000 years. I do think that there will probably be other types of humans still to be discovered. I mean, we didn't know about the Denisovans, and we now found them. We know there were these Homo floresiensis, these hobbit-like things in Indonesia that were there quite recently. Uh, I'm quite sure that, or quite confident, say, that one will in China or so perhaps find other forms of humans with a separate history. And all these forms then became extinct upon contact or shortly after contact with modern humans. If you like, the last 20, 30,000 years is unique in our history is that we are alone on the planet. We don't have any close relatives around anymore. Up to that time, there were always more diversity among human forms. We show up, we're the only kids in town. Just give us yes, a little time. that seems to be the case, yes. Hmm. Pondering. Food yes. for thought here. <laughs> Where do you think, I mean, 
a lot of people, a lot of people say, well, this is really interesting looking back. Does this help us today or in mm. the future? Well, of course, I am really driven by curiosity. In a way, we make an excavation in the genome as one would do an excavation in a cave to find out who has lived there before, to find out things about history. Now, that said, as with all sort of good basic research, I think there could, as a byproduct, be insights that are also practically important. There are people who argue quite reasonably, I think, for example, that a disease like autism probably affects some aspect of our cognition that's typical of modern humans. Our great sociality, our ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes that allows us to manipulate them, to lie to them, to form huge societies, politics and so on, that these other forms of humans never did on this scale. So if by studying now differences with the Neanderthals, this sort of catalogue of differences where we differ from them, we might be able to find changes that made this social hypersociality sort of possible. We might also get another inroad into understanding a disease such as autism. But as a byproduct then, that's sort of not the goal of our research. And to that point, we have understood there is some indicators as to the capabilities of speech that modern humans have that likely the others did not. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so there is. We don't know much about the genetic changes that make speech and language possible, but there is one gene that we have studied since nine years now, which is called FOXP2, that we know is involved, because if one copy is knocked out by mutations in humans, you have a very specific language and speech problem. The protein encoded by this gene has as a function to turn on and off other genes during development and in the brain. And if we look at that protein, it has two changes, two amino acids that changed in humans, and those changes are not shared with apes or any other primates. And when we now looked at the Neanderthal genome and the Nisova genome, those changes are actually shared with them. When we look even more carefully at this gene, though, there is a regulatory sequence in this gene which has a human-specific change not shared with the apes that's also not shared with the Neanderthals and the Nisibans. So it seems that some of these changes, these amino acid changes, which we know are important actually, because if we put them into a mouse and engineer them into the mouse FOXB2 gene, that does change how the mouse vocalizes and some of the motor abilities of the mice. So they are shared with Neanderthals, but there may be subtle things in regulation of this gene that is actually unique to humans. Because we don't know what this translates to really in linguistic ability, but surely the Neanderthals did have sort of vocal communication. But it may well be that their language would have been very different from ours. Maybe we wouldn't even have been able to learn it properly. I don't know. Well, the other point to that is is complexity. When you have a computer that only has a couple of instructions and a few readouts and a few, you can only do a few things. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have an instrument that is far more complex, mm -hmm. it can do more complex things. So that if our vocal abilities uh, to form words, sounds, but together were more, certainly our language could be richer. Yes. That that would be a that would be an advantage. <laughs> yes, and I mean something that's really unique to humans is our a very 
sophisticated control of the motor movements in the oropharynx. Sort of the millisecond control I need between our vocal cords, my tongue, my lips, to form articulate language, something no ape can do. So I think that probably some aspect of FOXP2 is involved in this. Don't you just love science, Savante? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Please come back. See us anytime. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Dr. Zavante Pabo is the director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. His 2014 book is Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. Our congratulations once again to Dr. Pabo for being named the 2022 Nobel Laureate for Physiology and Medicine and for the recognition of his profound career in DNA. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Osteoarthritis. Well, it's a real pain in the knee and hands, lower back and the neck. Anywhere there's a joint. Zalud Therapeutics is testing its injection in human clinical trials to attack the underlying inflammation, which itself drives pain. Dr. Zem Nguyen is the CEO of Zalud Therapeutics. Now, as we get started here, I was reminded of a time when I was back at university, and in retrospect, I had a pretty straightforward medical problem that happened to be also painful. And I went to the student health center and spoke with whatever doctor they assigned me, and she prescribed me pain pills. And I said, but what about the medical condition? And she said, all's well that ends well, and uh, left the room. <laughs> so that was, that was it. What was wrong with that experience? Moira, I'm so sorry to hear you summarize your experiences with pain. Unfortunately, it is still the situation that many, many patients suffer today. And the challenge is that there is such a number of different reasons why you feel pain in your body. And there's not a lot of great understanding of what's causing that pain. So a physician, a nurse, a caretaker would just want to throw a number of different medications at you and hope that one of them ends well. That is clearly where we find a huge unmet need in where we're focusing on, which is osteoarthritis of the knee. Now, Zalud Therapeutics is focused on long-term inflammatory conditions, and, and we're talking about osteoarthritis. Uh, how many people suffer? I mean, and where is it in your body? Osteoarthritis is a disease that impacts a number of different body joints. It is the most common form of arthritis affecting over 30 million adults in the U.S. today. Its lead area of impact is in the knee and it affects over 14 million people. So a little less than half of the patients that are suffering from arthritis. Just to put it in little context, it is the leading cause of disability in the U.S. and certainly a challenge for society today. It can impact a number of different disease areas a number of different body areas, including the hips, the shoulders, and the joints. Now, what are the standard treatments? Standard of treatment today is first, 
not unlike your situation that you just described, Maria, you go to the doctor and you say, I'm feeling a bit of pain and I don't know exactly where it's coming from. Maybe I heard it one day. Maybe I just woke up and I'm just not comfortable. And then you have the physician say, well, let's check a look at your body and soon they discover you have starting versions or starting forms of osteoarthritis. And so the first thing they would do is very much what your experiences were. They're going to throw a number of pills at you, whether they're NSAIDs, steroids, and unfortunately, in some cases, opioids, which you can imagine is not a good solution for a patient. Eventually, 60 to 80% of the patients that are suffering from osteoarthritis will not be managed on those pills. And what happens is they're forced to move to knee injections, which impact at least five to seven million patients in the US. These knee injections are similar forms of those pills. They're either NSAIDs, steroids, and they will give some relief for a short period of time, but ultimately they're gonna continue to suffer and be forced to go to a total knee replacement. You can imagine that's not ideal for a patient. We would say that is not a good result. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Not, not a good outcome that's put it that way. So right now, the standard of care is to manage the pain until it is no longer manageable with the treatments that we have, and then we go to the knee replacement. Now, uh, I'm going to take a little sidestep here so we understand what you'll be talking about. Uh, we all learned the term cytokine during COVID, uh, the cytokine storm. But it turns out that cytokines aren't all bad. They're good and bad. Now, tell me what that means. I would say that cytokines have a very important role. And cytokines are little proteins that are used for cells to talk to each other. And we call that cellular signaling. And when these cells talk to each other, they're telling us what's going on in the body. So in particular, in the COVID world, these cytokines are telling our body that there is an invader in the body. There's a virus that's coming into your body and they're going to do bad things. And so these cytokines come in and say, well, let's try to tell the cells, let's fight these bad things. Let's fight this virus. And so what they do is they drive a number of pro-inflammatory as well as anti-inflammatory activities to let your body heal itself. The challenge is when your body can't heal itself and it, we call it you're you don't have a balance in your body. And we're always driving for your immune system to achieve homeostasis, which is that balance. So Moira, you're 100% right. There's a balance between good guys and bad guys. And I would say the good guys are anti-inflammatory mediators and the bad guys are pro-inflammatory. And these cytokines talk to each other to just get that perfect seesaw balance where you have just the right amount of each. And when you have that balance, your body can fight the bad guys, heal itself, and then you can live a happy and productive life. When your body is not able to fight, all these bad guys are upregulated and your body is imbalanced, as in the seesaw. And what happens is you get chronic inflammation, you become sicker, you get ultimately chronification in some diseases, and then you start feeling a number of disease symptoms that you hear about in your day-to-day -day life that needs to be resolved as well as healed. So 
if I look at these cytokines, um, and uh, some are pro-inflammatory and some are anti-inflammatory, it turns out that interleukin-10 is both pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory, and that's what Zalud is working with. Zalud is working on a cytokine, a very important as well as smart cytokine called interleukin-10. And we call it the master regulator of inflammation. And why we call it master regulator is they're looking to always achieve that balance that I had just described. They're trying to make sure that there's just enough pro-inflammatory cytokines as well as anti-inflammatory. So your body can manage the inflammation, heal itself, and then go on to doing what it should be doing, which is being productive. So in particular, in our case, we're giving interleukin-10 to sites of inflammation. And what it's doing is down-regulating all the bad guys, the anti-inflammatory mediators, and helping your body back to balance and resolving inflammation, which then reduces a number of symptoms associated with the inflammation. So if I have inflammation in my shoulder or my knee or my elbow, there are more inflammatory cytokines than there are anti-inflammatory cytokines. And to resolve that, we have to bring that back into balance. That's exactly right. So your seesaw is tilting one way, which is in the pro-inflammatory side. And that introduction of interleukin-10 helps you get back to that perfect balance that you're seeking. Now, you did more than just say, oh, we're going to get you some interleukin-10. You engineered the interleukin-10 to have, I don't know what we would call it, an improvement. You tell us what you did. Interleukin-10 is so important. And I think across all the world of science, as well as clinicians, they would recognize it's a very potent cytokine. The challenge that's evaded us in a societal perspective is the ability to deliver interleukin-10 to the point of it being productive. And in particular, we solved two major challenges with our medicine. The first is that we've been able to express interleukin-10 at the site of inflammation. So it's allowing it to do what it needs to do at the right place. And this is through a DNA delivery mechanism. The second aspect is this engineering, Moya, that you mentioned, which is we had a single amino acid mutation. And that single acid mutation has a differentiated signaling. Remember when I was talking about cytokines talking to each other in cells? Well, it's telling the cells, downregulate that pro-inflammatory imbalance, and we're seeing improvement in inflammation as well as improvement, particularly in osteoarthritis of the knee, pain as well as improvement in function. Now you're in human trials and you've just concluded phase 2B in in one condition and are planning phase 3, the last phase here. Let's start with the clinical trial. You just completed phase 2B. What kinds of subjects were in it? What did they experience and what were the results? Moya, we screened a number of patients to enter and enroll in the study and 286 patients were enrolled. We first looked for patients that had osteoarthritis of the knee as defined as moderate to severe. And from there, how we do that is by asking them a number of questions that we call the WOMAC scale. 
and a Womack scale is specifically designed to ask them how their knee feels when they're doing normal day-to-day -day activity. Once we were able to identify patients that had this long-term chronic pain associated with osteoarthritis in the knee, we enrolled them in a study and tracked them on a monthly basis. And the first day zero, the first day they got an injection of either a placebo or our active product. And we tracked to see how they were doing on a monthly basis with this Womack scale where we asked them a number of questions. By day 180, which is six months after their first day enrolled, they got the option for a second injection. And we did the same thing. We tracked to see how they were doing, were they able to perform activities that they normally could have done, and we measured how they felt. Did it make them feel better? Did the pain increase? What were the number of things that came to their mind? By day 360, for a full year of this trial, we then concluded the study. And this is what we learned. The first thing we learned is that with two injections of our product, we were able to show a remarkable change in patients' report of how they're feeling, as well as how they were able to improve their function. And when I mean improve the function, it's simple things like walking or getting out of bed. So what we're thinking that we have is a potential for a product that's not only beneficial, but safe for patients that have osteoarthritis of the knee. So now you're planning phase three, which is necessary before you get approval. Um, how has what you've learned uh, influenced how you're going to design phase three? And, and how much bigger a study is it? Because our product expresses interleukin-10, this important cytokine, it's not an anesthetic. So Moya, remember when you're talking about all the pain meds that people were throwing at you, most of them are anesthetic, so they're blocking pain. What we're trying to do is get to the heart of what's causing the pain, which is inflammation. So we learned through these trials, it's really important for patients that have chronic pain to benefit from this product. It's not, I, don't, I feel bad for three hours and then therefore give me a medication. It is for patients to say, I feel bad for three months. I feel bad for a year. I feel bad for even two to three years going forward. It's for chronic pain. So we're very, very keen to select in our patient enrollment for phase three, patients that are suffering from chronic pain. The second aspect of this is we learned that two injections is better than one. And what we are, going forward with our phase three is looking at the benefits of two injections of our product and the duration of benefit. And we hope not only that we won't stop there, we're also looking at the potential for disease modification. We have a number of animal studies to show that it's not only helping with pain, but it can potentially help in terms of slowing down the progression of osteoarthritis. Now, that's an interesting question. We've associated that with inflammation and pain. How do you measure that osteoarthritis has stopped or has even reversed itself? What are the indicators? 
So we're going to look at a number of different biomarkers. We're going to look at anti-inflammatory biomarkers in the knee, as well as start measuring the cartilage in your knee through a number of imaging activities. And as you know, osteoarthritis has a number of different ways that it progresses disease. One of them is the breakdown of your cartilage. And so what we will look to do is explore whether interleukin 10 can slow down that degradation of the cartilage. Moira, as you remembered when I was talking about the treatment paradigm, patients that are suffering from moderate to severe osteoarthritis in knee, they are on a number of different pills as well as injections. And unfortunately, some are on addictive opioids. What we're looking to do in our candidate product in study in phase three is this ability to provide an alternative to patients to reduce their pain, to give them more options. And so in our exploratory phase 2B, we did see some distinction between how patients were intaking a number of other pain medications. It was not statistically significant, but certainly trending to some interesting observations. We hope in our phase three trial, given the larger number of patients that we will be enrolling, we will be able to decipher whether our product can not only improve pain, but also have a reduction in the need for other pain medications. Now, what else is Zalud working on? Zalud is working on not only looking at the benefits of this product in osteoarthritis of the knee, you can actually imagine there's a number of other musculoskeletal diseases that can benefit from the expression of interleukin-10, this important cytokine. What we are pursuing is not only osteoarthritis of the knee, we're looking at possibly facet joint syndrome, which is lower back pain, and we'll likely pursue shoulder as well as hip pain. But in addition to the musculoskeletal diseases, we are equally excited at the, at the potential of neuroinflammatory diseases. And when I talk about neuroinflammatory, I'm, I'm mentioning devastating diseases like ALS as well as MS. And in a number of animal models that we've conducted, we've seen improvement in motor function, clinical biomarkers, as well as survival in these disease areas. I've been speaking with Dr. Zem Nguyen, the CEO of Zalud Therapeutics. More information is available on the web at Zalud, that's X-A-L-U-D, ZaludThera.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. 
I'm Paul Lancor.